even now, like, you know, hanging out with you guys uh, on a daily basis and just even being able to riff all the stuff, for me, that's like, that's gold, you know? And when I get the real projects or the real world projects where you have to deliver on all sorts of experimental things, sorry, uh, tangible things, you find this gold dust and you just sprinkle a little bit of it on top, you know, just to give it that little bit of shine. This week, something a little bit different. We'd like to share with you an in-studio conversation between Krishna the architect, Brian the intern, and myself. This was a really, really interesting conversation. We go into talk about the differences between education and industry, between theory and practice, and also about our learning pathways and which period of our lives we feel that we gain the most. Cool. Yeah, I, I read this. Um, I read this on the wall of a gym, and it said, "Turn your turn your." Oh, I said, "Okay, here we go. Upgrade your passions into obsessions." And I was like, "Damn, damn, that's good." When did you when yeah. did you go to a gym? There's a there's hobbies and passions and then obsessions. I think that those are the those are the levels, right? Um, and uh, yeah, what do you what do you guys think of that? That wasn't the question, by the way. But no, <laughs> so I, I pick up these powerful words. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed a trend of you walking in and writing these um, inspirational quotes on the on the wall. I have a question for you, Hans. Where do they come from? Where do they come from? Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'm stealing from other masters. Um, sometimes they come from you guys. Having chats with you guys um, gets me to think about things. Uh, as you know, one of my daily rituals is thinking about the most significant events of that day. And uh, if it was a good thing, how do I like note, take, take notes, how I got to that good thing, how it came about. Um, and it was maybe just uh, me being more aware of, you know, uh, people's um, people's energies in a room, you know, maybe it's something that's simple. And I write down what I'm going to do to make, make that happen again. Or if it was something bad that happened, that was the most significant thing. Um, then, uh, you know, I write down what I might do to prevent that pattern from happening again. So sometimes that com comes from that, but, um, I don't know guys, it's, a, it's like gems, right? It's like, it's like, it's like little gems that you find that you can keep, you know? And it's like a zip file, you know? It's like a compressed five word thing that can remind me of a three paragraph feeling, right? And I don't need the whole three paragraphs of, you know, Jocko Willink telling me about Ramadi and uh, <laughs> his, his SEAL team days. I just need to uh, uh, prioritize and execute. That's all I need, you know? Nice. That's good, man. That's good. I'm glad you found a mechanism that works for you or, you know? Who knows? Who knows? But one thing that really makes sense for me like probably this is my biggest thing for the year so far is it doesn't matter where you start as long as you continue to improve uh as long as you consciously uh go about life in a manner where 
you have an experience, you learn from it. You have an experience, you learn from it. You have an experience, you know. It sounds super simple, but I've caught myself. I've been living, you know, almost 30 years of my life now, and I realize I haven't been doing this. I have, you know, I, I have good days and bad days, but I don't know what makes the good days good. I don't know what makes bad days bad. And so I'm just wallowing in this randomness, floating in the sea of currents that I don't control. And I'm just, you know, just fine with it, just floating. Oh, today was a good day. Today was a bad day, you know? But if I can just take one tiny hair of what makes a good day good, right? And make sure that hair <laughs> is turning into a weird, weird story, but exists the next day. I can control that, you know? I can control, okay, make my bed. I can control that. Okay, uh, keep your workout gear, do Put it in a bag the night before, right? Keep it by the door so I don't forget. I can control that. When I walk in the room, uh, regardless of how I'm feeling, what kind of fucked up dreams that I had or anything, you know, smile and say hi to my colleagues um, because how would I want the week to start? You know, oh, how's your weekend? Oh, it's all right. You know, versus like, Hey, morning, man. What's up? You look, why are you so grumpy? You know, just like a little, you know? Um, and you just build, right? You don't forget it. You just keep building. And I think over months and years and decades, if you're consciously doing that, I think that's, like, that's powerful. Nice, nice. Word of the day, people. Word of the day from Hans Kemp. <laughs> All right. Here's like uh, uh, here's the T-bone of a question for you guys. And Brian, you're included in this as well, so don't don't like. Uh, I, I can cut myself out if it's a terrible. Don't be a ninja. <laughs> no. silent ninja. You're, you're doing it then. Okay. In which period of your life so far do you feel? like you have learned the most? That's a real tough one. It's a tough one. Because you're learning something in every period of your life. I don't think, I don't think that, um, you know, just because you learn different things means that uh, a particular period of your life was easier than others in terms of learning because I think you're constantly learning, right? So would you say, yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. But would you say uh, the, the rate of your learning when you are doing something that potentially you weren't as passionate about, say in engineering, right? And the rate that you were uh, learning when you were doing something that you were more passionate about, um, potentially when you're studying architecture, I'm not sure, or the rate of learning when you were thrown in the deep end when you started working for professional practices, they all about average out. Do you feel like you've had a period where um, you were accelerated, you know, the pace of what you got out of that period, you know? And for me, to be, to be honest, I'll, like as a preamble to this, I don't remember anything from high school. Like almost anything I learned from high school, I, I I wouldn't be able to tell you. You know, and so I know I know that that period of my life, um, I'm sure it, it formed me like you know how I interact socially and um, little habits this and that. But a lot of it's unconscious. Um, but in terms of things that I apply to my life every day that um, that I consider is my craft um, not much it's and I I feel like that's a bit sort of a narrowed bandwidth of looking at it because like say for example when you said okay I'll speak about myself right uh, when I was at engineering um, you know studying mechanical engineering 
uh, quite possibly didn't enjoy it as much. You know, it really, um, I don't know, it, it didn't stimulate me enough mentally and, you know, I just was not as engaged as I possibly could be uh, with it. But at the same time, I made a lot of new friends. You know, it was a time for me where I was uh, with a certain group of people mm -hmm. at high school and then I moved into university and you start to meet new friends. And, you know, I'm still friends with them 10 years later on, you know, um, and they're a very big part of my life. So it's this idea that you're not learning. Yes, you're learning you know, how to be social. You're learning how to interact with people in a certain way. I mean, inherently, I'm, <laughs> you know, um, somewhat of a recluse, you know, that's sort of my, my state of being is this, you know, just, I'm happy, I'm content with my own thoughts and my own little world. Uh, you know, I'm not as extroverted as you, Hans, you know, in some ways. So for me, um, you know, learning how to expand your world and expand, uh, you know, your friend circle and all that is learning itself, you know, uh, and, you know, like through each interaction and friendships that you make and scenarios that you wind up in, uh, you learn from each of those, you know, you, you think, oh man, that was a great, you know, that was a great uh, trip that we did. Oh man. Or you think, oh, that is a very stupid thing that I did and I should never do that again. You know what I mean? Um, so learning doesn't always have to be this one dimensional professional sort of craftsman type angle, you know, it, you know, you have to look at yourself as a rounded individual, you know, and as a kid, you know, growing up in India, I learned different things, you know, I learned, uh, I started, I gained a really good understanding of my culture, of, of people, you know, of ways of life and alternate ways of uh, existing, you know, um, so I learned something from that. And that is what I carry with me so fundamentally today, you know, and I'm sure you can understand that as well, growing up in Korea, like some something you learned of some value, you know, at that age in life. Um, so I feel like you learn at every stage in your life, you learn every day. Um, and it's sometimes very hard to quantify, you know, in a nice little package of what that learning is, but it's like they all add up into this big pot and you stir it around and, you know, it sort of manifests as, as you, you know, as the way that you are. So yeah, that's, that's sort of my feeling on it. It's, it's yeah. So it's really hard when you say, what was one phase more efficient at learning something or more proficient at learning something or whatever that's because how do you even quantify that? Let me make the question a little bit more detail. I really like that answer, but it's still a cop out answer. <laughs> 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 uh, let me make a little bit more detail and say uh, in which period do you think you learned the most about your craft and your profession well that's a very different answer I mean a very different question you know um, and you know it really would be um, definitely in, in the later years of my life you know um, it's really um, when I was at architecture school, you know, I understood, um, well, I, I'd like if I said I entered architecture school, knowing anything about architecture, that would just be this absolute lie. But um, at the end of it, anyway, I understood what it took to be a craftsman. I was far from it. I still am. You know, I wouldn't say that, but it's um, very much I understood what it took, you know, uh, to be one and sort of the energy required, the patience that's required, all the different dimensions of it, you know. Um, so I would say, yeah, definitely, at, you know, going to university, being with like-minded peers uh, and actually, you know, feeling that passion that you you know, I guess that's what you're trying to target at with this question is when did you feel the most passionate is probably the question. Uh, and I would say it was at, at design school, you know, is when I felt the most passionate about something, you know. Mm. What do you think 
contributed to that, to you feeling that passion in that period? Um, and you already mentioned a few things like being there with like-minded peers, but was there anything else? Um, I think it's the, I think it's the openness of what you can explore. No, um, you really are limited by your imagination. It's, it's you can explore any ideas, you can push any project as far as you want. Um, you know, uh, yeah. So I, I think that's what makes it kind of special. I mean, once you're in the real world, you're passionate about very different things. Um, but those things manifest with very different, um, how do you call it? Uh, parameters, design parameters, right? Some of which you can't control, uh, you know, to some you can control, others you can't. And the beauty of being at design school uh, is that you set those parameters. It's almost like um, fixing a deck, you know what I mean? Like you, you, you can rig it uh, in some ways uh, to suit you, you know? And I think that's a, it's a very special time in your life um, where you can, uh, you know, explore things to the nth degree and just mix it up. Uh, and I think that's why I encourage, you know, even students going through design school now, I'm like, hey, it's, and it's hard to realize that in the moment. That's one of the things that I am conscious of is that when you are at design school, well, in the early years anyway, you feel very much like you're following a rule book. And then something happens as you progress through the years and you realize there is actually no rule book, you know, and you can break all the rules. You can do whatever you want. Um, you know, um, you can, you can, you can completely, um, flip the brief if you want to, if you can justify it, you can flip the brief. You can, um, you know, like, like you <laughs> were, you know, telling me Hans, you know, like, uh, take the position of, well, um, how, how would a, how would an alien approach this project or how, you know, how do you perceive a project a certain way or, um, yeah. So when you, yeah, you, you realize that there's no rule book. And then when you actually leave university, then you realize there is a very different rule book to the real world. So it's like, this it's, it's quite a crazy, crazy thing. You come in thinking there are these rules. And then you realize there are no rules and you can flip the script and explore all these sort of things and you go out in the real world and then there are rules, you know, it's kind of like, it's like this weird sort of stage that you go through. Um, was it, was there a, when was the moment that you realized that there were no rule books? There were no rule books and you could flip the brief? Well, I, I mean, I don't think there's a specific moment, but you, um, you, you start to realize that, um, I don't know, I think it's in, in, in the later years, so I think uh, for me anyway, it was post second year, you know, kind of thing. And you start to realize, well, actually, you know, the brief is calling for these things and um, well, you know what, I'm going to decide not to have any columns or something. I don't know, whatever it is, or, uh, you know, I'm going to be exploring some really crazy speculative future. Um, and the rule essentially became that if you can structure your argument and rationalize it in a certain way, um, then, you know, that's more important than your project being defined by gravity or defined by whatever it is. You know, your, your project is in a very different paradigm. It's operating in a speculative paradigm, which essentially you are constructing the rules of the speculative paradigm. So as long as you've made your um, your paradigm very clear, what are the rules of this paradigm? You can build whatever you want within it, you know? So that's sort of the mode of thinking um, that I, I got out of university. And then going from that into the real world, which obviously has a lot of, you know, <laughs> the word real world paradigms of um, cost quality triangle, you know, the triangle, and then you've got, the um, things like uh, structural stability and you know all these sort of other things that you learn over time. Um, but I guess the important thing is not to forget some of that 
some of those learnings, you know, and, and, you know, and try and find moments where you can apply uh, some of those speculative futures into your projects, you know, sprinkle them on top. You realize that that's actually gold dust, you know, like make sure you get enough of this gold dust while you're at, at university, you know, this sort of thinking and make sure you, even now, like, you know, hanging out with you guys uh, on a daily basis and just even being able to riff all this stuff. For me, that's like, that's gold, you know? And when I get the real projects or the real world projects where you have to deliver on all sorts of experimental things, sorry, uh, tangible things, you find this gold dust and you just sprinkle a little bit of it on top, you know, just to give it that little bit of shine. Um, yeah, yeah. That's that's super interesting. You're, you're totally, totally right, I think. And it's also interesting that at the high level of any creative discipline, it's, it's that... Uh, it's the gold dust part, your ability to find and apply the right amount of gold dust that is the sought after skill, right? If you can guarantee, if you can prove prove over a track record that that's what you can do, you are, I think that aligns with you being a very valuable, you know, talent in the community. But the places that you can actually do that, show that ability of yours, is at uni it's like the biggest like at uni because you're you're able to you know you're you're able to do that um as as, you, as, as chris said uh without you know constraints or, or this rule book because for sure when you leave uni and you get that first job and it'll be like design a logo for your local local fish and chips shop that's just starting out right like there's just such little little room to add any of that gold dust you know and if you're trying to showcase your that that edge of yours starting at that point then you're then you're uh kind of the the amount that your project will show that will increase incrementally you know what i mean you okay maybe after the fish and chips job you might have like a little packaging job and then after that you might have a you know um a, a product thing and then many years later you might have you know a, you know a mass manufactured i don't know right i mean look something you also have to be quite conscious of is after you've left university you actually have never played in this new rule book like by the time you get to fifth year at university you have mastered a certain speculative rule book because you are the king of your speculative universe and you can make whatever you want, design whatever you want, um, and structure this uh, design universe however you want. But the reality is that when you come out of university uh, and you're operating in the, in, in the real world and you're operating in a different rule book, you don't know how to navigate that rule book, you know? And that is something that you have to acknowledge, you know. Um, if you are going to, I guess, indulge yourself and to be part of this this universe while you're at university, right? Not everyone does, you know. Some people are much more pragmatic about it. Everyone has a different approach. But if you are going to indulge yourself while being in university and explore these uh, quite incredible paradigms of, of thought, that's fantastic. But then when you do step out of that paradigm and you do operate in the real world, it is important to acknowledge that you are now operating in a very different world and that what you're thinking might not have an exact fit with the real world. Um, and that can be quite jarring, you know, that can be incredibly jarring. Um, and it, it might even be disappointing to quite a few. And I think, um, that's actually quite hard. I mean, I know for me, it was quite a, quite a tough transition going from sort of the mode of thinking at university to then, you know, worrying about the different type of timber treatment that you need to apply to wood or specify. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like, uh, or even, you know, that sort of thing. Like it, it can get quite, um, can be quite jarring if you're not prepared for it. Um, and I mean, but that's my pathway, you know, maybe in some other people's pathways, they went into 
uh, perfect fit design paradigm, which fit for them really well. Um, so yeah, uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that change, that the rule book changes, you know, first there is this rule book, which you've made up in your mind, then you realize there's no rule book. And then there actually is one when <laughs> you come to play in the real world. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, the thing about the real world rulebook that you're talking about, it's not, it's, it's, it's not one person writing it. It's like, the, it's like the entire world co-writing it at the same time. And it's changing all the time. Um, so it's, <laughs> it, it adds the complexity of it. Complexity of it. Uh, for sure. Again, you know, like, um, you know, I, I keep saying like, there is a real world rule book, but again, there isn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, you know, it's how, how, you know, what's a better analogy for this? You know, like maybe it's about, you know, as opposed to a rule book, there are different forces, mm. I guess, maybe in the real world, you know, that you have to wield. Um, to realize something, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you can, you know, probably realize whatever you want. I mean, bloody hell, you know, Elon Musk is sending people to Mars, right? You know, he wielded the forces around him and he constructed the paradigms around it to realize, uh, a certain possible future. Right. Um, so again, it's, a, I think it's about understanding the forces that are at play and then building on those forces. Mm. I think that's why I gravitate to the edge of technologies because there is no rule books. Again, there's nothing. What, what do we do with, um, you know, the twin revolutions of info, infotech and biotech, you know, when we can, when we can start editing genes, um, when we can, well, we are already doing that. Um, if you look at the example of like, Obviously, like GMO crops, but also how we're controlling mosquitoes now with gene drives. It's like insane shit. But there's no, there's no collective rule book. The only rule book is the market forces and people, how individuals decide to spend their time, you know, using, you know, these AI algorithms that's coming out. What's the rule book on, um, you know, deep fake, you know, visual and voice copying, right? Now I can look and talk like, uh, Brad Pitt or Donald Trump or Angelina Jolie, uh, with a you know with a all right computer, all those script, scripts are out there for free. What are the rule books on that? You know, like that. Well, there, there are none, right? And so, uh, uh, you know, for, for those of you who, who are who are that way inclined, uh, there's some. There's always there's always green green space somewhere. Mm -hmm. Brian. Unmute yourself. Hello. It is. <laughs> you have you had some time to think about this now. Which which part? <laughs> you ask like four questions. No 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 no. Yeah. The, the one question. Uh, in which period of your life do you feel like you've learned the most? Oh, so uh, the first one. Yes. yes. Um, I mean, question was pretty pinpoint. Uh, no, Brian, you're not doing a cop-up. <laughs> okay, yeah, I won't cop-up, I won't cop-up. I mean, so in terms of, wait, so the question was, what pretty often do you feel like you learned the most? Yeah, um, I, I feel like the answer could be like easy. Like it would be like school or uni where you're actually having the most information like put into you um, at the most fastest rate, I guess. But, but, I think my answer would be during this internship. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this to like sound like a kiss ass, but I think what <clears throat> I mean by it is that it's because it's the most I've been aware of my learning. Um, and it's the part of my life where I, I feel like I'm putting in information in my brain where I will retain the most throughout my life. And that's like, cause like you said in the beginning, like you remember nothing about high school. You don't remember anything at all. Right. Um, 
And I, I feel the same way. Like I don't remember anything about calculus or or statistics. Um, like I, I failed at it, that's for sure. But like, but like in terms of information put into my brain during that time, like like I had textbooks and textbooks of information trying to be shoved in there. I had two private tutors and like no information retained. I cannot do calculus to save my life. If, if alien beings came down from earth and destroy, like asked me to do calculus or asked to destroy the world, I would not give, I could not give them anything. I couldn't even give them basic algebra. Like it's that bad. Um, but I feel like 20, 30 years from now, I, I, even if I wasn't doing a job related to graphics or design, I would still have this thinking of, of, um, or this, or just like habits, like good habits that I just retain. Um, just because I just been so, and you guys have been pushing me to be aware of, of my thinking and my, uh, I guess just conscious of, of my actions throughout this time. So if, if you say the period of time, which I've learned the most, it'll definitely be between these two years, I'd say. Um, if, if you were to round it out in the way I feel learning should be about. Yeah. It's very, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not trying to be a kiss ass. I'm being honest. <laughs> What was that, Hans? Chris, how does that make you feel? I think I think that's uh, you know, it's good to hear that you're getting some value out of this. <laughs> Fundamentally, um, no, I, I'm 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 really glad that uh, you yeah you you're getting the sort of habit building that is required uh, out of this, and you know. Um, even for me and Hans, we've got a long way to go in terms of our own habit building. You know, like, um, I think it's it's like that infinite quest, you know. I, I don't think it's you stop at any point with any of this. You can, you can always do better, you know. You can always do something, you know. You can always think about, um, you know, how you organize your time or how do you spend time with people and, you know. Yeah, so it's an infinite game. It's not a finite game. It's not something you do once and then you're, uh, you're done with it. So, but I'm glad that yeah we've been able to help and be part of that. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Have either of you guys got uh, a question, or do I get to dictate this? This, uh... Well, what was your what's your answer to this question? Your own question, Hans. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Without a doubt. With without a doubt, it was. In, it, it was in, in Germany when I was working for KW. Everything, I felt like everything I've done up, up until then was theory. And a lot of theory just got demolished when I was in Germany um, and working for those, uh, working for KW because I saw, I saw projects go from idea to uh, client approval to uh, prototype to build to actually out there and then response feedback and then reiterate. I saw that so rapidly and so mercilessly, so like ruthlessly done where the momentum just doesn't stop. And things just come out from people's brain to outside of their brains and actually into the real world and changing people's lives. Um, yeah, at an unforgiving pace. Um, and I just remember thinking, oh man, uh, 
so many of the of the tools, theory, um, practices, practice things, the things that I thought were important and were cool, it just like there was like a massive bushfire and then only like the essential things were survived. And I know that's not the full picture. You know, I can relate this to jiu-jitsu, you know, where I have a lot of knowledge um, after two years of studying jiu-jitsu. Uh, yeah, in fact, I probably know of as many different submissions and techniques as a brown belt in theory. Like, I know what a omoplata is. I know what a triangle is. I know what an armbar is. I know what a wrist lock is. I know what a knee bar is. I know all of these things and potentially different ways of getting there. But, but in practice, right, the guy who practices one of those moves, right, and is able to apply a lot of pressure while doing so will crush all your theory-based um, stuff, you know? And so that, um, so I know that the whole gamut of things that you might learn, um, you know, during your education um, at either university or YouTube, like they all work and they all apply and they'll all work in the real world. Um, I, I don't mean to say that um, they don't, but when, when it becomes powerful, it's, it's about how much of those theory-based things that you actually apply and practice and get it to a, a world-class level where it starts really working for you. Um, and I didn't see that until when I was in, I was in Germany um, and working, working with these guys. And they were, they had sharpened their process, their pro, like their process, not the process. They've sharpened it, and I was able to be one um, one link of the of the chain that they, um, you know, that they've crafted. Um, and so I know what that feels like. And you know, initially when I when I um, when we started on this mass journey. I think I thought that was um, that was the process, but it's not. Like we're now on our journey to discover our own, our unique own process, and it has to be unique because we're different people from anyone else on the planet, um, and to hone that to a world class level, you know. And I think that that only comes through, um, you know, time, dedication, patience, practice. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's what I'd say, as a professional. Yeah, process is key. Process, like, having, having your process worked out, um, you know, even just working myself overseas, learning you know seeing how these high performance practices operate they they know what they have to do like there there aren't people sort of sitting around with question marks you know if you imagine like a cartoon you know of an office kind of thing you imagine little speech bubbles you know <laughs> around people they're not sitting around going question mark question mark question mark when do i do something oh I'm waiting on something. There's never, there's in, there's never anyone just sitting around going, oh well, I'm just waiting an instruction from someone else, or I'm just waiting to figure out how to do this. No, they they have a process. They know that they have to deliver, um, and they know what quality they have to deliver at. You know, and they know exactly how their work has to be formatted so it can be handed over to the guy uh, next to them. You know, to carry on with that work, you know. Um, you know, people in these high-performing studios, they, they know exactly how to format their their work, you know. I mean, it can even be some really mundane things like, you know, you know working with a really good folder structure, you know, having your um, 
Rhino files layered correctly, having your Photoshop files layered correctly and using masks instead of like just using the eraser tool, you know, like little things, you know, that um, you might, you might just be, if you were working by yourself and you don't take the time to uh, learn these processes, right? It's only when you're part of a chain or a pipeline that you realize that the importance of having things structured the right way. I mean, this compounds significantly when you're working on complex architectural projects, right? Um, if you haven't structured your Revit project or whatever it is the right way, I mean, this sounds really uh, not very creative, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, it sounds like a very mundane thing that I'm actually talking about, but it's very much the act of you working as part of a team as opposed to just going, this is my quantum of work that I need to get done and push it out the door and I'm going to do it as quickly as I can. It's two very different attitudes. And you will notice that people that operate at the really high performing uh, end, they have that pipeline down packed. They know exactly what they're going to get from the guy next door to them and add to it and then pass that parcel on to the guy uh, after them as well. So yeah, process is 100% key. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about the more tangible side of it, but then there's obviously also the design thinking and the, and the thinking process that goes around it as well, which is also can be formatted in a similar way. You can think about it the same way as well, you know? So yeah, very key. Brian. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to pivot into the last part of our conversation. And uh, yeah, I have no questions, but I just want to learn something new about video games and psychology. Video games and psychology. Yeah, I don't know. I want to ask something about like the role of ego in, in, when you're playing a video game. With other the people. role of ego? Yeah, is ego a good, like, you know, what, what situation does ego get, get you into? I don't know. I don't really have a question. I just want to learn something new about video games. Tell, tell us a story. Tell us, like, I don't know. Like, I've given you a lot. Of, I think I'm giving you most of them. Uh, wait, what, what's, what's this about? E ego, are you talking about? Or you said Evo? What? I thought you said Yu-Gi-Oh. I thought you said oh, E-Girls. No. Oh, wait, did you say Evo? No, just video games online. Video games. Yeah, yeah. Um, um wait. I did want to talk about that kind of the mentality of of gamers, because um, Alice has actually touched up on it a lot, a bit, a lot yeah. actually. But uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything to add to that though. Um, it's already went quite far. Well, what's um, your there's been, I don't know if it's just, it's been a lot of drama recently. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good at all. Um, it's this Smash Bros, the tournament scene. Um, yeah, it's, uh, there's a few things that, that happened, mainly a lot of these pro players that we've known for a very long time are being caught out as being like pedophiles, essentially. Yeah, it's a pretty serious thing. Um, like a, a lot of like uh, some of my favorite players actually. Just apparently there's something about, you know, maybe something about gamers just not like psychologically, they just weren't popular as, as, as kids. So maybe they just, I don't know. I don't want to explain. I don't want to give them an out, but it, it, yeah. So basically a lot of them being called out for having like like parties and a lot of them just hitting on like younger girls knowing that they're below age and stuff like that. Um, one of the biggest, the biggest one, however, was um, one of them got called out for being, for being a scumbaggy or whatever, or, or being a pedo. And the dude, uh, the dude, uh, I don't want to give any names of this because he, he actually had to send out a video publicly announcing his like, organ deformity like his his like his penis was basically unfunctional because he, when he got a 
you know the Jewish people when they get their foreskin cut off. Apparently, that procedure went really wrong, and he like couldn't get an erection. And he publicly had to announce, like, tell that to defend himself. And it was super hard because this guy is like sort of he's on the spectrum. He's one of like the greatest players, by the way. He's on the spectrum, and he's like antisocial and stuff like that. And it's like a uh, maybe I'll give you guys a link, but it's like a 10, 20 minute clip of this guy like not wanting to do this at all. He really, really didn't want to do this to give out this, but he had to in order to defend himself. Um, and it's kind of, it's, like, it's hard, it's so hard to watch. It's so hard to watch. Um, maybe that's the latest, that's the latest drama though. <laughs> I don't know if you want to learn about drama, but uh, that's sort of the, the heartbreak. I sort of, a bit of a heartbreak because uh, a lot of my favorite players got caught out and they're just, they're not, they're not doing. They're not doing well, guys. <laughs> it's. It seems pretty bad, on um, on that end, because yeah, because it seems to be quite factual at this point. I don't want to say it is because, and it's it's really weird. Like this is all blown up through Twitter. Like like this. Like I, I really don't like condemning people. Um, before like a judge or something makes an, an, an announcement to, to see that as actual fact. But like, I don't, I don't even know if, if anyone's even being prosecuted or this is basically just this cancel culture of just calling someone out and hoping that the mob mentality would, would stop them from, from proceeding any more professionally. But a, a lot of these accusations are like criminal accusations, right? Like you go to jail for the shit, losing your professional job is, is really just, the should be the icing on the cake, but it's. I feel like you know we won't see much of it apart from that. Um, just which is scary to think about. Um, and yeah, t- Twitter is Twitter is toxic. <laughs> I, I know I've told you to get onto it, um, to share our social media, and it has it has really good, has really good points. But in terms of, in terms of like. In terms of this overall like mentality with Twitter, it's 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 not great. <laughs> um, from what my previous experiences with it, and from what I'm getting out of sources are, um, I'm mentioning. Um, but in terms of that, I can't I can't really think of anything um, gaming related. Is there? Do you have a question or anything for for games that you would like to ask? Yeah, that would push us away from that because that was quite that went quite deep. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, that's that's the latest drama. Like oh. before this goes gets posted, can we cut that? But <laughs> dude, that has to be posted. What are you talking about, man? I don't know. Yeah, no, that was the top of my head, sort of thing. Sorry. I'm about to give you my reaction to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go, go. Um, which is like my well, first reaction is like, what the fuck? I had no idea that that was going on. Um, but uh, I was watching the Michael Jordan documentary recently, um, and they were on like the first or sixth episode. Um, he, it's like he loses a game or something, and at this stage people have this pristine image of Michael Jordan, right? He's just the favorite athlete in history ever, international superstar, right? And uh, he, I think there was something like um, uh, an um, African-American political candidate that he could have supported, that he didn't. Um, And people just saw that as like, as like uh, an imperfection almost. And they just called him out on it, you know? And Michael decided not to comment on people calling him out on it. Uh, Like, why why are you not supporting your own community kind of thing? And eventually when when he did, he was like, well, I'm just another guy and I'm an athlete and you know, why, why, you know, that's how I picked it up anyways. Why, why does my one thing um, mean any, any more than anyone else's? I, I don't feel like, you know, this is something that I, I have to talk about. Like there was that. And there was one time where 
after a loss, he went to Las Vegas with his dad or something and um, spent, you know, like a few tens of thousands of dollars or something on gambling. And again, that kind of people saw that as like an opportunity to um, kind of point, point at him and be like, dude, Michael's addicted to this stuff. He's spending tens of thousands of dollars um, at the casinos. Uh, is he lost focus in the game? Like all this kind of stuff. Someone wrote a book about about it. Um, and uh, yeah, and I could tell that Michael talking about it in the um, uh, in, in the interviews and in, in the documentary. Um, well, for him, like tens of thousand dollars is pretty much the same thing as tens of dollars in our pockets. And he was never addicted. He was just going about his, you know, it wasn't anything strange, but people just decided to point at it and like blow it out of proportion. And um, when you're, it seems that when you're as famous as he is, or when you're kind of a public figure, that just snowballs into an incredible amount of pressure that normal people can't relate to. And um, yeah, what you're talking about uh, with Twitter, not in this case, because there, there might actually be some really, you know, bad things that are being called out that might be true and that might be hurting, you know, other people's lives. But um, a lot of people, as you said, are doing this on Twitter to get a reaction because they are kind of, I feel like, you know, they're not anyone, they're just another user. And then um, if they can say something that can provoke and get people to, you know, like start a domino effect, I, I imagine that would kind of make an unknown player on the internet feel significant to be able to do some damage to this potentially, you know, public figure, which I, I think are kind of like the modern day, like um, Roman um, mythological gods, I think are like, you know, we see celebrities sometimes in the same way. Like we don't think about them as humans. We just, you know, um, they're this name, this brand. Um, so I think there's like a bigger kind of cultural uh, tangly thing there. Um, and again, like nobody's no, nobody knows what Twitter is. Like I, as in nobody knows, even the people who are building it don't know what it is and the impact it will have because it hasn't existed before, right? Um, like I know um, one of our friends, um, Carla, um, at, one of the lectures at the design school was telling me about how Twitter has become one of the most important tools for researchers to get their word out about um, new research, right, that they're doing. So academics are using it to uh, get, to, to um, post and discover and um, uh, discover and, you know, peer review journal articles and stuff, you know? So, is that, is that good? Probably some parts of it, you know, probably other parts of it, like does, does, does do academics need to spend time on marketing themselves on Twitter and building a following? Is that good? I, I don't know. So that's my, that's my reaction. It's a good reaction. Yeah. Twitter's a, Twitter's a, a beast on its own. <laughs> it's just like if everyone has a voice, like, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah. I really like the Michael Jackson, sorry, Jackson, Michael Jordan um, analogy though. Because um, I really like, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I agree with like, if like wanting to bring people down. I don't know if like inherently people really like want to do that as a known person to like have a chance at the spotlight, but maybe that's just an optimistic view from my end. Um, I think maybe people do 
see it as like a form of justice. I think Twitter is very, or just social media is very justice heavy. And when they, when they see injustice being wrong, they just sort of jump in the bandwagon and they want to see justice brought down on, on people who do bad things. And I feel that's a really big part of it. Despite not knowing if, if, if justice needs to be brought down, like they don't ask why they just ask, like, like, do we, <laughs> like, they don't, they don't really deepen, they don't really go into the information. They don't even know these people, but they, yeah, the moment they smell like a bit of like wrongdoing, it's like, they just jump, they just pile on. This is the same for every social media platform, by the way, like Reddit, Twitter, everything is just um, very just justice, just a lot of, if you do something wrong, they just, they just hate you straight away. Um, yeah. Actually, but, my mom was telling me that the, the mayor of Seoul um, uh, killed himself uh, because I don't know the full details. This is just something that I heard from my mom and grandma in the car they're discussing this about how this guy was had built up his career as this very clean image. Um, person like never a scandal about this guy right and you know that was one of the main kind of reasons that people could trust him right and something something happened in his personal life or something but something someone dug up something about this guy and that kind of tainted his image and he couldn't handle it um is is the picture that i gathered and so yeah it's like when when you become that kind of public personality, like I think you just have to be the only way to. I don't know. I can't talk talk to this because um, I don't know anyone who's like this. But um, I feel like someone like Gary V. Um, he's just he got there by being completely honest and you know authentically himself. It, it feels like it seems like um, so that he doesn't really have um yeah things things to things to hide and hide and a lot of the bad things that about himself and his traits he just he just straight off about those as well as anything else um and it feels like yeah i don't know yeah. i wouldn't want to be be in that position yeah yeah no it's, it's a good way to do it but it's just like if anyone gets any dirt on you, it's just like your career <laughs> is, is over. Um, but this is so weird because like the idea of it, like how does it, it, I feel like it comes from a good place where people want wrongdoers to go bad, but how does it end up so dark, you know? How does it end up being so toxic at the end? It's, it's strange to me. I often think about this, like they say, I think um, someone someone was talking about the trade-off and the relationship between privacy and convenience that what modern technologies are giving us is this incredible um, convenience and options of, I, okay, I can eat the six, I have options of 16 different um, cuisines that I can have tonight and I can have it all delivered to my house, super convenient. But in order to get that service, you need to have an IP address, um, you need to have GPS. You're giving people data about your food choices, um, your diet, your your living patterns. You know, you're sacrificing a certain amount of privacy to get that convenience, um, and that seems to be kind of the trade-off. But um, and we're already like waist deep in, in in that train, and so I don't see us getting off anytime soon. Um, People might say like, oh, privacy is important, but I feel like the actions speak louder than words and that um, actions are clearly saying that, you know, man, Uber is great, Airbnb is great. Um, and, uh, you know, like people don't think about, you know, the privacy that they're giving away. And in that sense, I like to think about, you know, as a designer, I always think about the extreme. Like, will I be, will, will I be, I'm okay with ultimate convenience for zero privacy, right? And I don't know, and I wonder what you guys think of that world if, if we ever get there. 
And I like, I think it's gonna be okay if, if there was like zero privacy for anyone, like, like for anyone, like no one could hide anything about themselves. Doesn't that just like equalize everything and makes everything okay? Like everyone's done bad shit. Everyone's a bit evil. Like sometimes, depending on the context, get over it. Like doesn't that just equalize it? Obviously, there's like more. There's like a gradient of you know bad shit we can do, but like unless unless we're gonna all decide to pretend to be perfect human humans, you know, from day day one. Like, which I don't think is going to happen. Like, isn't that okay? Like, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm okay with that, I think. But last, last, last one. That's this one. I'll end there. Okay, Brian, come on. Uh, well, that was, that was, yeah, the last bit was controversial about the privacy thing. But, uh, yeah, shall we, shall we call it, Chris? No, no, wait, wait, wait. Like, yeah. I, want, I want to hear your responses to that last, last bit. Like, <laughs> Uh, this, uh, it's too hard. Cause I feel like that's a very, that's a whole discussion on its own. Yeah. On the privacy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, you're, you're like asking for a, you know, a light statement on a very deep topic. It's, it's, it's not going to happen oh, <laughs> on God. a Sunday night at 9.30. It was just skim the bit off the top and, you know, and then we'll do, we'll do it. We'll do it longer. That's, okay, next next week there'll be there'll be a discussion then. I think yeah, let, let's have a, a proper discussion on this topic because the whole uh, yeah privacy versus convenience is a yeah. We'll get the whole team on this. Yeah, get the team on it. Yeah, that'll be yeah. good. That sounds good. Yes. Yeah, I would like to hear you guys' thoughts as well. Hmm. Yeah. Let's do that. Thank you.